Podcast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I am your host tonight, Gavin Tolometti. And I'm your co-host, Yusuf. And today we are here with Mohammed Sharma. So Mohammed, uh, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. Right. So it's fascinating. You're doing astrophysics. So tell us a bit about your background, how you came to be interested in astrophysics and perhaps cosmology and what you did in your undergrad, for example. Sure. Uh, well, I was always interested uh, in physics and astronomy. I watched a lot of science fiction shows growing up, Stargate, Star Trek. Those were uh, classics. Um, nice. So when I went into my undergrad, I went into physics, uh, physics and math. And uh, when I finished, I knew I wanted to learn more about astronomy. So I started looking around for programs and I ended up at Western to do my master's. And then I continued with the PhD after I finished my master's. So what was it about Western that really attracted you out of all the other universities you may have looked at? Yeah, so to be honest, I was actually more interested in like the, um, not the cosmology stuff, but the planetary uh, space exploration stuff and, uh, you know, more pure astronomy things. Uh, so when I saw that Western had like a center for space and planetary exploration, uh, that kind of caught my eye more than like other universities, which are very like dark matter specialized or cosmology specialized. I bet uh, you've read some of Stephen Hawking as well, maybe in your early years. <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe a little later actually, but you know, all these, definitely a lot of scientists, uh, that I look to as role models growing up. So if the dark, if dark matter and cosmology wasn't really your biggest interest and it was more for planetary science and the smaller scale stuff from, from what it sounds like, what is it specifically that you study then? What it, what it is I studied right now or? Uh... Oh, right now. Yes. Yeah. So, okay. So I guess to, to make it clear, I think Stargate was the biggest influence on me because of the wormhole technology and stuff. So that's really what pulls on my heartstrings is like, you know, space exploration. But right now that's not really what I'm working on. Uh, what I'm working on now is, is star formation. And that's where we're, we're trying to understand how stars form. Um, it's not really a project that I thought I would work on coming out of my undergrad, but I met with my supervisor when I was looking for grad schools. And as we were talking about projects, this project came up and it sounded very interesting to me um, because it covered a lot of experimental aspects and theoretical aspects. Now, is there a particular galaxy that's you know, maybe got a lot, uh, some extra is a bit more interesting for you like, and any particular stars that you have really enjoyed studying? Um, so as for specific objects, there's, you know, my master's was on, I was using data from Orion's Nebula, which is, it's a stellar nursery. It's a, it's a, it's a re relatively close by nebula. Um, and there's, it's in the process of forming many, many stars. And if you look at images of it from Hubble, you can see it's this very beautiful structure and there's lots of complicated details in the gas and the, the clouds inside of it. So with, um, 
all of their end specific star formations that I know there are more than one type of star. I mean, I can't remember. I know there's our star in our solar system. I don't know the, the type off the top of my head, but so is, do you look at all types of stars yeah. formations or is it specific type? Yeah, so I, I guess I'll back up a bit to give some context. So when we're trying to understand, when, we, when we're studying star formation, what we're really trying to understand is um, what are the types of stars that form? Uh, what are the processes that change the types of star that form? Uh, we want to know things like how massive a star will be, because if we know that mass, we know um, if it, we know how long it will survive for, we know what it will eventually become. Um, and it turns out that it's, not, it's, not, it's pretty difficult to predict, given some cloud, you know, will this produce uh, low mass stars? Will it produce high mass stars? So we're really trying to understand, if we understand the star formation process, we, we really want to get a picture of where do all of these types of stars come from. Right. Um, so when you study the early formation or, or early processes of how stars are formed, you get to know uh, a lot about, or you can at least infer a lot of, as to how the star will evolve, how massive it might be, might be for example. But what can you infer um, about the galaxies uh, in which the stars are constituted as well? Can you say something, or can you make predictions as to uh, the nature of those galaxies based on the early processes of those stars? Yeah, so it's not really my area of expertise, but, um, you know, the, the types of stars that form uh, will determine what that star, what elements that star will make. So it will affect, for example, the chemical composition uh, of a galaxy, say. Uh, we do know that there are galaxies that seem to have there are two big categories of galaxies. There's um, elliptical galaxies, which seem to experience uh, little star formation, and there's spiral galaxies like ours, uh, which experience a lot more star formation. And they, these can really change the shape of the galaxy, they can change the composition of the galaxy, and probably other things that I'm not too familiar with. <laughs> so what is it that can control the composition of stars when they start to form? Is it just what um gases available that uh, where they start to form or does it really depend on how old the solar system actually is yeah so when you just have a cloud it the star is just going to be made of whatever that cloud is made of but what is maybe more interesting is if you if you get a higher mass star it's going to be able to fuse uh, elements that are higher higher mass uh, or further down the periodic table versus lower mass stars like our sun, or not exactly low mass, but our sun won't be able to fuse some of the higher elements that higher mass stars will be able to. And that, that will affect the composition later on. I guess I was um, wondering uh, about your interest in say black holes and the relationship between some stars and how they may become black holes as well. And I was wondering, um, normally we might think as black holes as being highly destructive, uh, yet they play a central role in galaxy formation. I was wondering if you can comment about that and what your views are. Sure, yeah, so 
if we understand how stars form, we will understand how many high mass stars will form. And if we know how many high mass st stars are forming, we should be able to say something about what the population of black holes will be, because those high mass stars will eventually become black holes. Right. I mean, so I was just thinking, do you, uh, what do you think about, say, for example, black holes? Are there like those really dangerous objects in the world that people must fear? Or are they really important in uh, the formation and evolution of galaxies? And thereby, we might have a more positive view, uh, despite what some of the popular uh, popularizations of black holes might suggest. Yeah, so I certainly don't think black holes are something to be afraid of. Um, for the most part, they're, they're not going to suck us up. They're, they don't act as vacuum cleaners. Uh, they just kind of exist. And if you get too close to them, obviously, it could be a danger. But I don't think there's any risk of our solar system, for example, getting too close to a black hole. But black holes are a lot more interesting to study because they are very extreme labs, so to speak to see different kinds of physics. And uh, as you mentioned, black holes will kind of lead to interesting structures. For example, every galaxy seems to have a black hole at its center. I'm guessing you must have been a little bit excited when the first official image yes. of a black hole was released to the public. Yeah, because it was all theory. It was all theoretical of like from Stephen Hawking saying this is what they would look like. And this image practically proved he was I can't remember if he was like entirely right, or he was more or less correct on what they looked yeah, like. Yeah, so the, the image actually uh, of the black hole is predicted from general relativity, and it, it kind of, it actually did fit very well uh, with that prediction, which was nice to see. Um, personally, I think I would have been, uh, been more excited if it didn't fit with general, with general relativity, as I would hint at like some new physics, which is kind of Excite well, very exciting. Um, New research opportunities in the future, then. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, but yeah, it was like a very impressive technological feat, and you know that the technique they use to collect that data is called radio interferometry. That's where you have radio dishes all over the Earth, um, and that that lets you see things at a higher resolution than if you were to just use one dish, and. Uh, I really enjoyed that because I learned a lot about that technique in my master's where I used a much smaller radio interferometer uh, for my data. So it's nice to see it's nice to see how it can be applied to something else completely different, like imaging a black hole. Right. I was wondering, um, so at some point you began um, to be more interested in magnetic fields and especially the role magnetic fields might play in star formation. Could you tell us uh, what you have uh, recently worked on in, in this uh, respect and what you've learned about magnetic fields and star formations? Yeah, sure. So uh, one of the key challenges in understanding star formation is to be able to understand the details of all the complicated processes that happen. And the, the reason it's complicated is because these clouds are very turbulent and there's magnetic fields that go through these clouds. And that can affect the way a cloud collapses into a star because these clouds, there's a lot of free ions floating around in them. And those ions will kind of get stuck to the magnetic field lines. 
and that can actually slow down uh, the collapse of a star. So for example, uh, if, if you had a cloud that didn't have a magnetic field through it, you would expect it to collapse and form a star in about 10,000 years. But if there is a magnetic field through it, that process can actually take up to 10 million years instead. So that magnetic field is really affecting how the star is forming. And we, we kind of know that from a theoretical approach, but if we want to take it to the next level, we have to be able to test our theories against some observations. And the techniques for measuring the magnetic field in a place that is, you know, hundreds of light years away have to be pretty delicate. And, you know, it's, it's, you can't go there to measure the magnetic field. You have to devise some better method or some more clever methods to get that magnetic field information. Uh, so that's what my, my research is mostly focused on is how we can uh, take light that we measure and specifically its polarization and how we can, from that polarization, uh, infer what the magnetic field is. And so with l the light that you're measuring, you mentioned infrared before. Is that the type of light that you're looking at or is it a different wavelength altogether? Uh, so we typically, what we typically do is we, we look at the transitions of the molecules that are in that cloud. And these molecules, uh, these transitions, they're rotational transitions. So they actually are in the millimeter or radio range. All right, so like similar to like the signals we use at radio towers. Yeah. To communicate. Very similar, yeah. Oh, okay. Our telescopes are radio telescopes. And that allows the, for you guys to see, as you said, light years away. Yeah, so, so. We, we can look at the transitions of molecules that are in nebula that are light years away. And um, based on the magnetic field in that environment, light will scatter off of that molecule in a specific way that we can uh, measure and then hopefully work backwards to get the magnetic field information. Okay, okay. So Mohammed, um, do you work also in collaboration with some other uh, people in your team perhaps? Uh, is there some collaborative work that you're also involved in? Uh, yeah, so my first project I collaborated with uh, uh, researchers in Hawaii and one from Spain um, who also do similar work and currently we're trying to collaborate with a group in France. We were supposed to meet them a few weeks ago but that didn't pan out. Could you tell situation. us, uh, yeah, well could you tell us some, some of the stuff you've done, the sort of research you've done with some of these people as well and what you've learned from your um, method, observational methods? Yeah, so one of the things we're currently working on is to, we're trying to make a, a map of the magnetic field in a, in a nearby uh, cloud. Um, nice. Yeah, so this is going to be like a really big test of our uh, theoretical technique, or theoretical model. Um, and, but we believe we'll be able to basically take an image of that map and overlay on it, you know, the magnetic field lines. Um, yeah, in a very accurate way. And that will give us a, hopefully a neat map. Have you ever wanted, or have you already had the opportunity to go to any of these telescopes where you were 
where you had collaborators? Yeah, so during my master's, I actually got to travel to Mauna Kea in Hawaii, uh, which where they have many telescopes there. And I got to, <laughs> I had a good few week, a few days traveling around the island and learning how to use the data. Right now, I'm extremely envious because being a studying volcanology, it's like a dream location for me to go. Yeah, I also visited the lava fields and we hiked for like several hours through them. How was your experience just traveling and learning about your research? That must be pretty cool. Oh yeah, it was awesome. It was a fun two weeks. Yeah. Did you get to see the, go visit the telescope you mentioned in Madrid or? Oh, no, no, Spain. Sorry. Uh, so, no, not yet. Hopefully in the future I'll be able to visit it. Hopefully when we can cross the Atlantic again. Yeah. <laughs> so, did that, when you were doing all that work in your master's, was it that research that inspired you to go into a PhD and start to study more about early star formation? Or was it something else that really prompted you into it? So, in my master's, I... Feel like I got a taste of what the project was uh, and while I had finished a paper by the end of my master's there was still a lot of work to be done uh, on that specific project we needed to we needed to make sure our model was correct so what I had done in my master's was just uh, some observational work to, to show that there was a, a problem that needed to be fixed um, and then I finished my master's and the problem still wasn't fixed. So I wanted to stick around to fully develop, help fully develop the theory so that we could completely solve this problem. So it felt very natural for me to transition into my PhD and continue on that project. Well, Mohammed, before your interest in black holes and star formations, what else were you interested in? Um, perhaps it might be maybe similar to your um, research, but um, I guess before the research, what were you doing as well? Uh, yeah, so I, I think uh, during my undergrad, I had a few co-ops where I got to, uh, for two summers, I worked at a mass spectrometry lab where we were doing radiocarbon dating. This was at University of Ottawa. Uh, I also did a little bit of computational neuroscience, where I got to model uh, neuron activity. Uh, I enjoyed all those things, and I, I think I, I enjoy jumping from project to project. So, you know, any, any, anything in, this, in science or physics uh, will hold my interest. And I think, uh, I don't know if I will stay in star formation after my PhD but it's certainly something that I'll, I'll keep with me as I, if I move so, to anything else. I guess, um, what, do you, what have you enjoyed the most this year um, in your endeavors? Uh, this year, I really enjoyed... <laughs> I'll have to think about that. Uh, yeah, I spent a few weeks trying to pin down some simulations uh, of what our theory actually predicted. Uh, there was a lot of problems, but I think eventually I got something to work only to realize that there was some more problems in the theory. So while I had resolved the computational problems, I think we're back uh, to pencil and paper for a bit as we work out some theory. 
And for after your PhD, since you think you may not continue in star formation, is there something, if you were to sit, give a, a topic right now, is there something that really catches your eye that you would say would be almost like a dream job for you? Yeah, I would love to work on any th theoretical projects that involve uh, traveling uh, to other stars or planets. <laughs> Where would you like to travel? Uh, I, I think I'd like to work in Europe, maybe, if that's possible. Oh, I was going to say, I think I could probably answer that for you. Since if you are Canadian, you can apply for like postdoc and research positions at the European Space Agency. Yeah, yeah, I definitely it's have Canada's that. the only non-European country that can actually work in Europe. Yeah. So it's a good advantage for Canadians. I'm definitely aware of those. I think, uh, <laughs> yeah, but I think one of the, the research projects that kind of calls to me is for, I don't know if you guys have heard of the Alcubierre Drive. It's a, it's like a method of, you know, it's like a warp drive uh, that's kind of based on general relativity. And that's something I've always wanted to dive deep into, but I don't know how far out there it really is. Probably very, but it could be a good hobby project. We're more towards the end of our um, session. Um, I had a question. I wonder if you've watched Interstellar and what your thoughts are. Christopher yeah, so the first time I watched Interstellar, I didn't really, I, I enjoyed it, but I felt like there was some, uh, some plot holes in it, but I watched it again a few weeks ago, and I don't think there are any plot holes. I think it's a perfectly made movie, and really? I really wow, enjoyed okay. it. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I really enjoyed it the second time through. A lot more. I've watched it maybe a few times myself. Uh, I think one of those times I may have been a little high, I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, and it was the longest movie I've ever watched. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was it was a very fascinating movie. Now, what was a part that you maybe enjoyed the most, or was maybe insightful as an astrophysicist? Uh, I really liked the way it gives you a visceral feeling for what time dilation means, and it really makes you feel it in a like a deep, deep in your gut. You can feel what time dilation is yeah and the the music really is amazing in that movie about to say i yeah oh so i was about to say that for me when i watched that movie the music was actually one of my favorite parts right could you uh, tell us more about time dilation at, at least as you saw in interstellar and how it was insightful yeah so uh, time dilation is a relativistic effect that occurs uh when you are traveling uh, very quickly or very close to the speed of light. Um, so, so basically, if, if you are looking at an object or someone on a spaceship that's moving uh, very fast compared to you, uh, you will see uh, that their clock moves slower than your clock. Uh, while for the people on the spaceship, they will see that their clock is moving normally. And so what, what will happen is that once the people on that spaceship slow down, uh, they're going to be a lot, long, a lot younger uh, than you think they should be, or you will have aged more than they have. So in the movie, you can really get a feel for it because uh, Matthew McConaughey goes on, onto a planet that's very close to a black hole. And when he comes back, his kids have grown up and he's missed out on all this time, even though an hour or so has passed for him. And then, uh, you know, the emotional, the way he deals with that kind of drives home. 
Right, I really <laughs> want to watch that movie again now. <laughs> so, Mohammed, with all this experience you've had uh, going to telescopes, look, using different types of light to image all these stars light years away, and I'd imagine there must be some undergraduates, even high school students, or anyone out there who's interested in astrophysics. Is there one piece of advice you'd give them if they really wanted to get to this field? I find a lot of people worry about uh, keeping up with the math work or keeping up with the theoretical work. And while that can certainly be a challenge, uh, I think if you keep your love for astronomy alive or keep your love for science alive through books or movies, uh, that's very important in giving you the energy to overcome those challenges. Okay, that's very good. So if anyone wanted to ask you, let's say that question or anything else, uh, where is it that they could um, contact you? Sure, you can contact me on Twitter, for example. It's at HMS Mohammed. Uh, right. Or send an email to any professor or graduate student uh, that you might come across. Okay, yeah, that sounds good. We'll be sure to leave that in the show notes. So unfortunately, we are about just about out of time. So wanted to thank you again for coming on the show and talking all about stars, black holes, and your interesting thoughts on interstellar. Thank you, Mohammed. <laughs> yeah, so much. So this has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Gavin Talamedi, and my co-host was Yusuf Hassan, and we've been speaking with Mohammed Shama. And this episode was produced by R.A.L. Frame. If you would like to be involved with the show or get in contact with us, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at gradcastradio. To listen to us, we are on the radio at CHRW 94.9 FM. You can also find all of our episodes on our website at gradcast.ca or on podcast apps like Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Alternatively, select podcasts have been uploaded to YouTube at gradcastradio. Thank you for listening and have a great night.